hello to you, our listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And I don't want to deter you from listening to this episode because it's fantastic, but I do want to warn you at about halfway through this episode, we do speak about domestic violence and in particular uh, the statistics around women and disability. Um, so if that may be triggering for you, maybe this episode isn't right for you. Otherwise, there's a great educational piece around it from her lived experience. Let's get into it. You are the first wheelchair user to compete in the shitbox rally. Never done it before, and I'm sure I'm going to do it again. But I had to pee in a bucket on the side of the road. Let's give some love to where you're staying, because as somebody who talks about, you know, and teaches inclusivity and accessibility, you said you're staying right now in the best hotel for accessibility you've ever had in Australia. What is it? So it is... The statistic is women with disability are 40% more likely to be a part of a situation when it comes to domestic violence. There's less opportunity or less places for that woman with disability to go to after that actually happens. Some of the stories that we heard was just the fact that people just weren't wanting to acknowledge or hear or understand the needs of people with disability. I'm Mel Harrison and I am founder of Sitting Low Reaching High, which is all about disability consulting across Australia. And essentially um, what I'm looking at doing is trying to make the life more diversity and inclusive for people with disability in this country um, in many different ways, but mostly around like safety and around social and sexual safety um, and around accommodation and making sure that People have the ability to be able to just be part of society in the same way as other people. So for me, I have been a wheelchair user since I was 14 years old. Um, I'm now 42, which I don't like saying all that old. I feel old now. Um, but so um, since I was 14, but I've worked in the space for 22 years. And I've also had a hearing impairment since I was 25 years old. You said you're a wheelchair user since 14. Yeah. Were you disabled from birth or did something happen to you around that time? No, so I wasn't disabled from birth, but essentially when I was born, I I couldn't move. Um, I couldn't do anything, um, essentially. So my parents were told that I was going to be like a vegetable for life because that's the words that they used back in the day. Um, back in 1981, um, and essentially for like nine months, my dad had to tube feed me um, for me to be able to, and I couldn't move, etc. And all the doctors kept telling my my parents that I couldn't actually move my body. Um, my dad was like, "No, no, no, she can," and he laid me on a block of ice and I kicked my legs, um, which proved that I was a little bit stubborn. Um, but then I went from like being like, you know, like a child until I was 14 years old, I had 16 major surgeries on my back and the last surgery resulted in being in a wheelchair. So I never got the life of the normal kid where you could actually go and like play contact sports or just like the stuff that I saw my sister do, I couldn't do. Um, and that was always something different. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, I also know that, like, my parents did what they could do to get me to where I was. 
How did that make you feel not being able to do the same things as your sister as a as a youngster? Were you always comfortable with your disability or was it a bit of a journey for you? For me, like I was always upset. It always made me feel like I wanted to be able to do what my sister could do. But at the same time, I was like, I was really happy watching my sister doing it because I knew that she was doing it for the two of us and that was something pretty special for me. Because she was pretty, like, she's, and she still is to this day, like, regardless of sibling relationships, she's still the person that will do whatever she needs to do to make the two of us be okay with each other. Mel, you know, we're seven years apart, but, you know, I, I sort of come to the end of the the culture of where you sort of grew up and the culture has changed luckily around disability and the visibility around it. But, you know, back in the eighties, uh, was the attitude for your family being the first um, person directly affected by disability that, you know, make her walk at all costs was the reason you had 16 surgeries because that was the attitude of the time is whatever it takes to make our daughter and to use your words normal. And I'm using the little bunny ears. No, I, I, like, for my family, no, because my family are pretty, like, cool around that. I think it was more around, you know, that they just thought that if they kept trying, it would work. And then eventually, and the only reason why we stopped the surgeries was because the last surgery, when they told me that I wouldn't walk again, they told me I could have a surgery that potentially would enable me to be able to walk again, but I would have a stronger chance of losing the use of my arms. And as a 14-year-old girl, I was like, well, no, you know, and I don't know if I can swear on podcasts, but you can imagine what I said. So that was um, exactly what happened. But it was literally that whole perception of, like, let's keep trying, let's keep trying, and also medical, medical people wanting to keep trying rather than, my family as such. And you're also uh, hard of hearing, I would say, not obviously not deaf. So was that part of the medical complications of part or was that just something that randomly hit you later in life? They really don't know, to be honest, because um, I've never actually been diagnosed with a, a disability or, um, you know, like something that's going on, um, et cetera. Um, so I've had testing, so I've had genetic testing and they haven't worked that out, um, et cetera. So, but yeah, like my hearing has been like lost since I was, well, since I was young, but mostly since I was like 25 years plus. You've been slamming the speaker too loud. Got the boom <laughs> Listen, able too, too loud on that max volume, turn like it down it. halfway, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, what do you think? I can take my hearing aids out. <laughs> <laughs> the chat, we won't be chatting for too much longer than we do that, I reckon. For somebody who does maybe know someone who is hard of hearing or deaf, just a reminder, this podcast is accessible. So uh, this episode and all of our episodes are available on our YouTube uh, and captioned personally by us. So um, Mel, we have to give a shout out. We did start this interview uh, before we hit record. Um, I knew that you were in Tasmania. L let's give some love to where you're staying because you, as a, somebody who talks about, you know, and teaches inclusivity and accessibility, you said you're staying right now in the best hotel for accessibility you've ever had in Australia. What is it? So it is Peppers Silos at Lawn Seston and it's right on the water. 
absolutely fabulous and to the point that the whole hotel is accessible in terms of things I can reach and I can get in and out of bed easily. Um, but the best part is, is that, like, you know, transferring from the chair onto a toilet and onto the shower seat and my chair doesn't slide when it's, like, floors wet, etc. it's amazing. Like, it's just awesome, all of stuff, but also the fact that they've got an actual fire plant and not just, like, there's fire evacuation doors. They're like, can we put your number down on our list and if you don't answer, what can we do, etc. So they're really, like, conscious about the emergency plan that, you know, and the best thing, like, my view, and I wish I could actually show it to you, but it's blurry, like, doing it from the screen, but, like, looks at the water outside the window and often accessible rooms don't have a view. I, I don't know how you are, Dylan, but... Oh, penthouse is usually pretty good for Dill. Yeah. You're an idiot. Um, I, it's funny how different things turn different people on. Able-bodied people are like, oh, we've got a bath, we've got, you know, we've got to wear like, mm, disabled bathroom, hot. And <laughs> and you're right, normally the disabled room in a hotel are downgrades. So on the first, second, third or fourth level, because that I'd assume people would book them like a better room, like a, like a suite or whatever. So you can only get the crappy rooms often in hotels. Right, so you're staring or, at the air conditioner correct, of the hotel Correct, or next they're year. low in case of a fire or, or whatever it is. Dylan, you'll be able to reach the air con. You'll be able to call, turn the lights on and off. And you can have a lovely view, which is lovely. Mel, for parents of children and teens with disability, could you give some of your experience as to why uh, in particular, your dad is remembered so fondly for his support of you growing up because, you know, we do have parents of kids with some disability and you speak so highly of your father. We've spoken before um, and, you know, we had a little bit of a brief um, look into your past and your, the support of your family. What, what was it about your dad's support that meant so much to you 40-something years on? Oh, there's so much, but I think um, a lot of his stuff for me is around that he just believed in me and listened to what I actually wanted um, or needed, but also didn't try and take over. So I remember things where, you know, when I first ended up in a wheelchair and I couldn't do stuff, um, etc. Um, he wouldn't help me and people would look at him like he was not a nice person for not helping me but he was doing it because he wanted me to learn. And I also knew that he would be the first person that would jump through fire to help me, which was like really, which got me to where I am today. And it's just that support that I've go like, he's the person that I will call all the time, you know, to ask for information or support. But it's also that person that will tell me, um, if you're just whinging or complaining, I'm not listening. Um, so, like, if I call him and say, I've got a problem, and he'd be like, well, if you're not doing anything about it, then I'm not listening, and he'll get off. Like, so he'll make me actually do what I need to actually do um, going forward. But, like, yeah, he's just a good good person. Um a very non-speaker, so doesn't. Actually, so a lot of people might think that he doesn't talk a lot, and he actually doesn't. 
He only talks when he needs to, really, which I think is also pretty important. Did you reflect on that in your later years about that tough love helping to force independence from you, sort of? Or because at the time, were you resistant to that? Were you a little bit like, you know, I look back on some of the times when I was angry at mum for certain things and I recognise as a later and now father, I recognise the things and the sacrifice my parents made. But at the time I was like, why can't I have an Xbox? Everybody's got an Xbox. My mum couldn't afford an Xbox. Was that later on in life or did, at the time did you recognise um, what he was doing? No, it's only been recently, really. So do the parents getting pushed back? I think it's one of those things, you you know, the, the gratitude comes later on in life for the the screaming matches you have with your kids, I think. Yeah, and I think that's like how it is with everyone. Like people go, oh, our parents are doing blah, 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 and then we become parents and realise why they're doing blah, blah, blah. It's a good lesson for parents with disability. I say this as well. I had incredible parents because they loved and cared about me, but they also didn't wrap me in cotton wool. Mm. But that's a fine line sometimes for parents to understand because they think pushing their kid is not caring for them and vice versa. They overcare, so they take away their voice. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And when we actually think about the reality, any child that becomes 18 with a disability or any child, period, I'm talking about disability, um, once they become 18, unless there is legal guardianship, there's no one that can take control over what they actually decide and not decide. And I think that's really important. And I think often when it comes to the disability space that people think just because they have a disability, they can actually control that. Uh, Three years ago, Mel, uh, yourself and a colleague worked on a project to support domestic violence services and you opened a refuge, the first refuge in Orange for women with disability, um, followed by uh, Orange, Dubbo and Mudgee. The statistic is women with disability are 40% more likely to be a part of a situation when it comes to domestic violence. Uh, we haven't really discussed this topic a lot and having somebody who's had that lived experience and that expertise in the field, uh, can you share with us in the audience some of the stories you've heard from people you've met at these refuges and also what kind of support do you give those people in those times of need? So um, myself and um, Freya Wolf were the key drivers um, and we were working on a project um, to help um, women and children with disability in domestic and family violence services across New South Wales. And the reason we were doing that was because we understood that a lot of women, particularly um, experiencing domestic and family violence, were getting resources or getting any refuge or any help um, going forward. And if we look at the statistics, that women with disability are 40% more likely to experience domestic and family violence than someone that doesn't have a disability, which is quite huge. And then when you think about that's being a huger um, percentage, but then the fact that there's less opportunity or less places for that woman with disability to go to after that actually happens. Um, so that's one of our reasons why we we're looking at really trying to get that and some of the stories that we heard was just the fact that people just weren't wanting to to acknowledge or hear or understand the needs of people with disability um so basic things like you know like someone with an intellectual disability might need a support worker someone that has a 
like that might be blind, they might need a guide dog, someone that's deaf might need an interpreter, someone with physical disability may need someone help helping them to be able to get into bed or into the bathroom or whatever it is. And these are these are just basic stuff. I sit there and think it's twenty twenty three and we're looking at basic humanity stuff to keep like at least twenty percent of the population safe. When we think that there's four point four million people with disability across Australia and that's only reported. So God knows how many are in Australia, if we don't look at the reported, because there's people with intellectual disability, people with psychosocial disability, people with immune um, like disabilities that aren't reporting it because they don't want to, or they have a physical disability, they don't want to report it because they just want to be them, uh, etc. So I just think it's really important to go, you know what, like we just got to go at the end of the day, like make things inclusive, not accessible inclusive. Does that vulnerability for those women come from, you know, I know you spoke about intellectual disability. Does it come from, uh, you know, not understanding, you know, the rights of their own bodies? Like I'm, I'm guessing is, does it come from the vulnerability of somebody in a wheelchair, not being able to get away from somebody who is maybe preying on that person at that time or being violent? Is that, is that where that vulnerability comes from those statistics? Absolutely. A lot of it's coming from the lack of education. So a lot of people with, for example, with intellectual disability have never been afforded the same level of education as you and I have. Um, So simple things, when they say something, is not necessarily the words that you and I would use um, because we've been afforded with that um, education, Um, but also the whole mirroring of supports like trying to prevent people that have disability to be part of any sexual activity. And as soon as you avoid that from happening or prevent that from happening, that actually increases the risk of violence towards that person with disability because they don't understand what it is. They don't understand what a healthy relationship is. They don't understand what that unhealthy relationship is. And it's, like, so important to know that. And... You know, there's many, many people that have disability out there that are asexual. They sh- that's their choice. But there's many, many people that don't have disability that are asexual, and that's their choice. And that's the part to recognise of going, we just actually need to be providing the right information to everybody to ensure that they actually know what their rights are and the fact that, you know, like making sure that we're not safeguarding people in the terms of like, you know, you have people with disability that have been abused, for example, but all of a sudden it becomes an in-house issue rather than a crime. And that's the part that we need to look at. What was the reaction from the communities of where these refuges were? So it's not just about protecting vulnerable people, in this case, you know, women and and children involved in domestic and sexual violence. But you've got to educate everybody else too about what is happening. So when you went into these communities, what was their response as a bit of a case study for other communities to copy? No, I think it was really good. I think they they all really embraced it and I think they realised that needed to happen 
But the issue, I think, was that, which a lot of people were saying, which is rightfully true, that there's still only a couple in each refuge successful. Um, so if you're still looking at multiple, multiple, multiple people with disability that potentially are going through this, there's still not enough space. But it's still like that starting point. And that's the part that I sit there and go, well, you've got to start somewhere. On your website, Mel, it says that you challenge the idea of labels as you've never fit a typical label or defined yourself as being disabled. Um, you did an introduction for yourself, but you didn't uh, define yourself. How, how do you, um, what do you see when you look in the mirror as Mel Harrison? What do you define yourself as? So I just see that person that just wants to be me and just like live and I don't actually see myself as that person with the disability. So for example, if I, if I book dinner, for example, or going out somewhere and there's a bunch of us and some are in chairs, some are not, I never include myself in the chair. Like I just see me as me and I just deal with. Why not? Because I think, like, I just, when I ended up in the chair, like, um, I had two really, really good close friends that were like, you're just Mel. You're no different than you were, like, after the last surgery, and we're just going to, like, keep continuing. And it's not about, it's not about me seeing myself in the chair or not. It's just me seeing myself as me. I don't define myself in the chat and I don't see there there being an issue. It's just more that I don't know. I don't know how you feel, Dylan, like about that. But great perspective, by the way, and everyone. This is the cool part about this podcast is none of us are right or there's one way of doing disability. I I'm not Dylan in the wheelchair. I'm Dylan, but I'm in a wheelchair. So I love and own it and I'm proud of it and 100% would always say that. But that doesn't mean I'm right. Like it just means we're different and that's fine. And I think that, as I said, educating people around, we often hear this. It's like, oh, I didn't want to mention your wheelchair because I once talked to one person they hated talking about it. It's like, well, sweet. That's just, that's like talking to two people with blonde hair. I don't like talking about their blonde hair. You know what I mean? In that sense. So, um, I, I like your perspective for, for you, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I always would, I don't know, I just forget sometimes when I don't mention it, but it's not on purpose. I'd be like, hey, I'm by the way, I'm in a wheelchair if I remember. And that's absolutely the same with me. It's not that I don't mention it, so that I just don't choose to mention it. I'll mention it if I need to rather than having, having to. Yeah, like if you want to get that really good table or get some free shit, always mention it. <laughs> that's what I do as well. Well, Mel, I hate to label you as a wheelchair user uh, here, but you are the first wheelchair user to compete in the Shitbox Rally. What uh, is the Shitbox Rally? For people who don't know, can you give a bit of yeah. a – I know this is a, one of your favourite points of your life, so can you fill people in for who, uh, if they don't know about those old cars with a bunch of stickers that sometimes drive down the main streets of our cities? Yep. Um, I'm joining the Shitbox Rally for the second time, um, and the Shitbox Rally – essentially is raising money for the Cancer Council um, of Australia. Um, but to be able to be doing it, you have to drive a car that's worth less than $1,500 and it can only be a two-wheel drive and it's got to go across the outback on 
um, off-sealed roads uh, for like seven days and you're camping, um, et cetera, to raise money and hoping that you get across the, the actual line. I did it last year um, from Mackay to Darwin and I was the first person in a wheelchair to ever do it over the 12 years um, and using hand controls. And from doing that, there was a guy that was following me, Chris, who did the rally in um, March, I believe it was, and that went from Wollongong to Tasmania. And now I'm doing it again from Port Douglas to Adelaide in Adelaide. So in um, October. Um, and it's super, super cool because it's such a fucking awareness raising, not just around like raising money for Cancer Council, but around disability awareness as well. Because there's so many communities that you go across in that seven days. I've never seen anyone in a wheelchair. Never seen anyone disability. What did you drive last time and what are you driving this time? Driving the same car. So I'm driving a Toyota Tarago that's got 960,000 kilometres. What? Ooh, what wow. year was it born? 2006. Oh, that's Jeez, like, someone ripped that. God, that, was a, that must have been a salesperson on the road selling phone books. God, that's a lot of cases to get up in that kilometers. time. Selling phone books in 20, 2006, you reckon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, one, of my, one of my best mates, the cab driver, it's his old car. <laughs> oh. And I bought and when I bought it, it had 950,000 kilometres on it. And now it's got 900, I think, 962,000 on the meter. Nice. So going across remote parts of Australia, the most remote parts, like you said, like even off-beaten, you know, non-bitumen roads, um, what accessibility uh, troubles did you have and how did you overcome them when you're literally using hand controls on dirt roads and camping on the side of the on the side of the bitumen? Oh, I think it was, like, relying a lot on um, on people helping, etc. cetera. Um, but also that I've never, never done it before, but I, and I'm sure I'm going to do it again. But I had to pee in a bucket on the side of the road, um, which, you know, the things that you have to do when you've got no accessible toilet for 700 kilometres, I pee in bottles all the time when I go camping. Everyone does. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I thought it was uh, apple juice with breakfast. It sucked. But, yeah, you know, but that's Things we learn. We, we were spooning together, actually. So I've never peed in a bucket before. That was different. And just learning things like that you just got to go, well, you know what, you just got to you got to let loose and you got to give up a little bit about your own control and... I'm pretty much that person that likes to control everything in terms of the way that I do everything, etc. But during the rally, you can't do that. Like, you know, there's bits that you can't push yourself or you won't be able to get to the bathroom or you won't be able to get to to the shower. You won't be able to get to the bar because it's up two stairs, all of those sorts of stuff. And it's, you know, it's just things that you learn and I think for me it was the biggest enlightening experience for me because it made me have to go, I need to let go a little bit and not just think that I can do everything for myself. Love it. 
Um, Mel, we finished our interviews with a bowl of uncomfortable, and like we uh, said, hopefully everyone's here for this one because uh, this one's a doozy. Uh, Dylan, this is uh, one that you contribute to as always as well. So this is sent uh, from listeners who have questions for our guests with disability. This one's anonymous, uh, and it says, I work in construction, and we had training about questions you can't ask employees legally, which include do you have a disability? 90% of the jobs we offer require hard labour. Do you think it's the employer's fault or a person with disabilities if they're placed in a role they can't fulfill? And if so, how do you let them know they aren't capable slash let them go? Oh, that's a, a tricky one because I just think that I think that ultimately is a combination. So I think that um, a person with disability needs to know what they can do um at all times but then i also think that an employer needs to be able to provide reasonable adjustments and accommodation for that that person so i think it's a combination i think it's a conversation that the two need to have have um not necessarily just one thinking one or the other you can ask if someone has a disability you just can't discriminate if they have a disability and oh. also, if you have a question, you can't say yes or no. You can just have to leave it blank. So you can have it there and people can write it, but you can also not write anything if you want. Mm-hmm. But you can't click yes or no, right? So you can have an opening like, if you have a disability, let us know here. If not, move on or whatever, right, if you want to. So there's no pressure to disclose. Um, what it used to be is, do you have a disability? Yes or no? If yes, what is it? You can't do that. But gotcha. you can have something where you can say comments around if you do have it. But you can definitely ask, but you can't discriminate against. Um, and also, if you create a safe working environment where people can go and feel like their authentic self, people will tell you about the disability. The reason they don't is because they won't get a job. Mm. Because if you do say yes, you don't get an opportunity. So that's, see yeah, how it's a bit of a double-edged sword kind of thing. But hopefully that person who works on that site gives people disability opportunity. But i, I got a mate who used to play basketball with called Billy. He lost his leg. He owns a construction company now. He used to be on the tools himself. You know what I mean? And I always like, it got passed around a while because people think he couldn't do it. He's a bub and amp. He's like a great trading. Mm. But it's just about changing that perspective and giving those opportunities. I think there's also a guy that we might be speaking to in the future. I think he's like disability dad or something online, but he was involved in a construction fall and he became a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. And now he, I'm pretty sure he works back in the system, but as a safety officer. I to talk with that guy, I reckon. Yeah. Not long ago. He's got a bunch of kids. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know that guy. There you go. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. You got one? Yeah, I don't. Last question from a Facebook fan called Anonymous. Did you ever feel cheated in life because you had to overcome more obstacles because you obtained a second disability? What's a good one? No, I feel, I feel like I was frustrated, but it also felt like the... I like so for me ending up in a wheelchair was the easy disability. Ending up with a hearing impairment was a hard disability. So I struggled a lot more when I found out that I had hearing impairment than when I found out that I couldn't walk again. Um so and I still struggle with that on the terms of that people always think that me not being able to walk is the biggest issue. Where it's actually, if I don't have my hearing aids, that's the biggest issue. Where I struggle is more around perception and the assumption that people might have around disability. And I think that I think that's different for everybody. And I think that's really important to note. 
because we're all so different. We all see disability in a different way and how we perceive it or not perceive it, it's going to be completely different and no one's going to be ever the same. Nice way to end it. Um, of course, sittinglowreachinghigh.com is the website. It's all in the show notes below, so you can get in contact with Mel, but also a big thank you to the Disability Expo, in particular Sydney Disability Expo. We worked with them in August. Um, you're one of their proud ambassadors, and we got to work with that amazing team to so hopefully bring some of our audience across the gates to check out the amazing, what the biggest expo for disability in Australia. And Mel, you're a star, and we really do appreciate your time and um, sharing your story with us and the audience. Thank you. Good on you, Mel. Great legends. See you soon.